Good evening. I uh, come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we have <coughs> heard some of. Um, Jesus loves me. And yes, we all want to think about that, and we all want to believe that. So, to get started, as Tom said, I was asked to share some of our journey. However, right now I have this really strong urge, and it's very rare that I get this strong urge to just go out and jog. But right now I have this urge not only to get out and jog, but to run. Um, but I guess I'll just stay, I'll try to stay right here, and maybe eventually that urge will go away. <clears throat> but anyway, on a more serious side here, uh, yes, like Tom said, I was asked to share some of our experience. <clears throat> I guess first um, I will do a bit of an introduction. Like Tom said, I am Chris King. Um, we live right here in the Nickel Mines area. I grew up on, on the what's known, what was known as the Levi King Farm right here on Mine Road between Wolf Rock and Nickel Mines. <clears throat> when, I got, when, when we got married, I moved to a property with my wife just joining my father's farm. That is where we lived. In, on October 2nd, 2006. So I'm here tonight with my wife, Mary Liz, uh, with our youngest son, Benio, and our daughter, Rosanna. <clears throat> we, have, um, we have five children. Leroy, he's married to Anna Mary. Uh, they also live in the area. And we also have Alvin and Johnny, both of which are not here as well. So, I, I also wanted to, before I forget, or before I go any further, I wanted to take the time to thank the Brotherhood here for everything that has been done for us through this fellowship in the last 17 years. Probably, probably none of you folks I have known, well, maybe one or two. Uh, before this incident of 2006. But since that, I've gotten to know quite a few of the folks here, and that has been a blessing. Uh, there has been a number of you folks at our house singing. <clears throat> we have received lots of gifts, some of which I know are from this congregation here, so thank you for that. <clears throat> I will try to, the best I can, just simply... Share from my heart. We have some notes here. Uh, this is, after all, 17 years ago. It is surprising how much of the details you really forget. As we were talking about this, uh, we got out some of the books, and we were just, as a family, going through some of those. I made some notes on some timelines on some things that happened. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm hoping it's okay in here, in this crowd, as I share, as I try to share from my heart, I'm hoping it's okay with you folks if I cry, because I do. This is, this is very close. 
This is very close to our heart. This is who we are. Um, and Tom was right. I think it was Tom that mentioned that some things happened there that changed uh, nickel mines forever. Some things happened to us in our family that changed us forever. <clears throat> and we are still on that journey called life. So join us, um, <clears throat> our family, as we go back to October 2nd, 2006. This year, on October 2nd, the day, October 2nd was on a Monday, this year. Um, it did not happen very often. Leap year was in there, and I'm not sure if there was ever an October 2nd since, on a Monday, that the weather was as close to what it was in 2006. Clear. <coughs> Harvest was in full swing. So what happened on October 2nd, 2006? I had also intended to ask that question. Tom had asked it. I couldn't really tell. But how many hands went up? Who, how many people here can still remember uh, what happened on October 2nd, 2006? I'm just curious to know, you know what percent of the crowd. So maybe half, if that, of the people. <clears throat> well, on October 2nd, 2006, it's a long time ago, right? 17 years. There was a small school in Nickel Mines on White Oak Road. We had two children attending that school, eight years old, Leroy, our oldest son, eight years old, and Rosanna, right here. Six years old, just started school, full of life, just chirpy, eager to learn, eager to see what the world is all about. <clears throat> we were what we thought was a normal family. At that point, we had three children. Alvin was two years old. We thought we were what was a normal family, just filling our own little uh, dot on the globe. Well, the morning of October 2nd, 2006, at about 10.35, a, uh, <clears throat> a little before 10.30, a, a man entered the schoolhouse. He had some kind of a Clevis hitch with him asking the scholars if they saw something like that. He needs some help to, to, to look for something. Well, he went back outside, and one of the eighth grade boys heard him, heard what sounded like a gun being loaded, which is what it was. He came back in, pointing the gun. I asked my son about that a little bit again here a couple weeks ago. And uh, so he... He ordered, okay, I, I guess I just have to, I'm not sure what to call it, put in a disclaimer here. I don't know how much or how many, how much to get of where or how fast to move on or what to touch the most. I'm going to try not to spend a lot of time in the schoolhouse. However, okay, this Charlie Roberts ordered everybody to the front of the schoolhouse. If you can picture a little one-room schoolhouse, uh, similar to this, he ordered everybody up to the blackboard. You must lay down and be quiet. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> actually on October 2nd, I took my oldest son Leroy out for lunch. 
I asked him a couple of questions. One thing he mentioned, he said, I asked him, I said, so I don't quite remember how was that, where did you actually go out and, and lie on the floor? Yes, he said it, he, they did. And I asked him if him and Rosanna had any conversations back and forth. He said, no, because Charlie told us to be quiet. Charlie told them to go up, lay on the floor, and be quiet, and nobody will be hurt. Now, can you imagine these school children? They believed that. This man was threatening, and yet he said, nobody will be hurt if you just do as I say. So they did as he said. <clears throat> the teacher and her mother immediately slipped out the side door and went for help. To this day, I praise God that they did that. Who knows what could have been... There's many things there that could have been worse, believe it or not, than what actually did happen. So they went for help. So then eventually he also ordered the boys to leave. So the boys got up. We didn't know this for quite a while. But and I'll, I'm just telling you our version of this. There is other people that have their own, everybody has their own version. My wife would have her own version of what to talk about, what it, how it went. But we found out sometime later that Leroy, our oldest son, had to step over some people. There was people laying on the, on the floor. So he actually, later, it came to mind that, well, you know what, I actually stepped over Rosanna. So he stepped over his little sister and left. Can we try to imagine? <laughs> Through no fault of his own, the guilt that an eight, that an eight-year-old boy would have to carry. He left his sister there, laying on the floor. And where the boys went, they went up to the farm, my father's farm. At 10.35, a call came into dispatch um, that there's a gunman in the school. Charlie had told everybody to lie down. Um, at some point there, he, he also called 911 from his cell phone. He told the police he has 10 girls hostage. Everybody that's outside on the property, on the premises at that, at that point, there's about 10, about 12 state troopers on the premises, on, outside on the perimeter. And he knew it. However, he had all the windows in the schoolhouse were boarded up, the curtains were pulled down, the doors were barricaded shut, nobody could get in. They couldn't see in, they couldn't, the, the, there was a couple of police that really wanted to just ram the door. But they, they did not get the okay from their commander. Doug Beery was commander at that time. They did not get the okay to do that because they had no idea where people were inside the schoolhouse. It was so dark in there. Um, and like I said, nobody could see in. So they were just staging on the perimeter of the property. So he called 911. He said he has 10 girls hostage. Everybody must leave the property now. I'll give you two seconds or else. 
Well, of course, they weren't leaving. They had a SWAT team on the way. I think they were still about five minutes out when, when uh, shots were fired. So there's, there's a presentation recording that the, that the dispatchers, that the police have, that, we, that they show us whenever we want. Um, those kinds of things have helped us on our healing journey, but there's something on there that says, shots fired, shots fired. So he was shooting, the police stormed the building, broke a bunch of windows and just, just barged, back, er, barged into the building. He shot out the front door, shot through the pickup truck that he had brought in, narrowly missing a police that was running up the driveway. Uh, one policeman, I think it was John Smith, uh, went rushing up to a window. They, they came up in pairs. He came up to a window, looked behind him, uh, and said to the one behind him, he said, he'll, pro he'll probably get me, but you get him. He ripped the window out with his bare hands, cut his hands up, and dove into the, into the schoolhouse. As he was going in, Charlie shot and killed himself, and he was falling over. I know there's some really some things there that, and if, if somebody is here that, you know, this is just too much, you're welcome on my account to just step out for a little bit. But really, this is real. This was real. I got the message. I was two hours, about two hours from home. I got a phone call on the job site um, that there's a gunman in the schoolhouse. But as far as I know, this my brother called. He said, as far as I know, he didn't shoot yet. However, at that time, it was all over. But I didn't know that. So I headed home. Got to my dad's farm there on Mine Road. I think about 1.30. We had a fast ride home. Um, so there, to try to give a little bit of, a, of an insight on what it was like there, there was lots of people there. The first report that I, I knew, I found, um, found out almost nothing on the way home. When I got there, the first report I had was that he kept all the girls, left the boys go. Okay, so I thought of our son. I, I know that one of the first thoughts that I had when I heard about this was um, my Aunt Verna, which is, was widowed a couple years before that, and she's also here with us tonight, as well as another neighbor couple here. I thought of her two sons and a daughter in school. She had just lost her husband a couple years before that. So at Dad's farm, so I go into the house. Every, all the school parents are sitting around in a circle. And at that point, I knew literally nothing. I didn't even know, not even sure that I knew that there was shooting before I got to the farm. Well, the first person I see when I go into the house there at my parents was the teacher. Things just didn't make sense. It just, it just didn't make sense. So pieces started coming together. Um, so we were waiting there for information. There was lots of yellow tape up down around the school. There was helicopters flying around. At that point, it was media. The, uh, there was lots of helicopters there before that, too. The EMT or the uh, ambulance helicopters were there. Some of the girls had been transported via helicopters, others with ambulances to different hospitals. Um, and try to take yourself back for a minute and imagine 
the chaos that may have ensued. Once the police were inside the building, everything was dark. The place was filled with gunpowder or gun smoke and blood. Um, the desks were all pushed around. So they were they were taking the girl. They they personally picked the girls out and took them out. Most of them. Um, and then it was to try to give attention to the ones that they thought still have a chance of survival. After every, the immediate needs were taken care of, the girls were all either transported or pronounced dead, then started the, the work of trying to figure out who was where, who went where. Remember, these were school-age girls. They didn't have identification on themselves. So, and they didn't look the same anymore, so who goes where? The police set up a command station right there at school, um, and then they were trying to send pictures back and forth to hospitals, trying to figure out who was where, and yet at the same time, um, like Rosanna and quite a few others, first went to Lancaster General, and then were transported to other hospitals. Hershey, Chop, Delaware, Christiana, Delaware, um, multiple other hospitals. So we were there at the farm. Us parents were asked to just stay at the farm until we know where our children were at. Uh, and I think Verna's daughter, Esther, uh, I think was one of the first. And I think that was about 3.30 we decided. I was talking about it again today. Um, about 3.30, Verna found out where Esther was at. She's in stable condition and she's in Hershey. So that was a piece of information. There was two others that about the same time we, that we heard had passed. So now we knew, and my dad, I know when I met my dad there at the farm, he said uh, he, he just cannot believe that there's any, anybody that was in that schoolhouse that's not killed. Um, so then it, it really started sinking in that, no, this, this really is for real. This is, there's, actually going, there's actually people died. So we were trying to get reports, trying to get information. There was a lot of people there. The media was there, people in and out with the uh, fire companies, police departments. At one point, I know we got a report that Rosanna is in, I think it was CHOP. Um, about 10 minutes later, somebody came and said, oh, no, it wasn't her after all. Those were the kinds of things that we were dealing with. Uh, and the hours were going by. This was about 6.30, right? We had just sat down to eat. What does that mean on an afternoon like that? Well, we were told we need to eat. So we sat down and somebody came in and said that they now found Rosanna. I think all the other parents had left at that point. Maybe one other parent was leaving about that time. So Rosanna is in Hershey. So we headed to Hershey at uh, 6.30. Got into Hershey you have those times right. About 6.30, we left the farm there, right? At 7.30, we got to the hospital. And it was another half hour from when we got to the hospital till they actually left us into her bedside was <clears throat> about half an hour. So we got to her bedside about 8 o'clock. The doctor there showed us a CAT scan on his screen. Bullet hole right through the head, just above the ear, straight through. <clears throat> he said, she has a, and until that point, we really, I, I so well remember, 
we really thought that, well, we knew she had been hit. But we thought, well, that wouldn't happen to our daughter. You know, people don't get murdered here in Leicester County. <coughs> when he told us that, he showed us that CAT scan, it really hit home. This is for real. And he said uh, she has a very traumatic brain injury. Uh, I can't even remember what all he said she has, but he said she has, through her brain, she has blood, air pockets, bone fragments, bullet fragments. He said if a person has one of those in the area of the brain that she has, they usually don't survive. He said you have an option. You have a choice. We can either take life support off now and watch her die. Or we can let it on for a couple of days until her organs start shutting down, but the end result will be the same. She will not survive. Looking at the CAT scan, we believe what he said. And even today, there is absolutely no medical explanation whatsoever that Rosanna is still alive. We took life support off. Half an hour when we got to her bedside, half an hour later they took life support off. And we figured that she would die soon. So friends, neighbors, relatives coming in all night, coming and going. Her parents were there. I'm not sure even if my parents were in that night. They had, they were there at home on the farm, right? They weren't in that first night. So <clears throat> the next day, I know they were in. I remember, and at that point, how do you want to say this? At that point, we had done very little processing of any kind. It was just so traumatic. It was so overwhelming. We were just in the moment and just, just, trying to get our next breath, really. I remember the next morning, I had, I had not slept or maybe very little, a couple minutes, maybe I'd fallen asleep there in the hospital. I woke up the next morning. I know I, I woke up. This was around 6.30 or so. I had taken a little bit of a nap. I woke up and I just remember thinking, whatever thy will, O Lord. I remember having that feeling and that feeling was, real. It was sincere. I usually say if only I could have kept that feeling longer and more often. I, it seems I, I have to continue. I, I guess in our human bodies we have to continue working for that. <clears throat> On Tuesday, this was now Tuesday, um, early Tuesday morning, four o'clock, there was a couple other girls in that hospital as well. Vernon's daughter Esther was there. Um, and Chris Miller's one daughter was there. My wife went in and identified her. I think they had their, her identification figured out, but Mary Liz went in there and said, yeah, that's Lena. So here Chris and Rachel Miller had gone down to Christiana, Delaware, I think. It was in the evening, Monday evening. Got the diagnosis on their daughter, Mary Liz, took the breathing machine off, were holding her, that was their oldest daughter, holding her in their arms, watching her die. 
She passed. Now they went with, I think, a police car up to Hershey at a fairly high rate of speed, the way I understood from hearing them talk. They got into Hershey and did the exact same thing with the next daughter. They came in there about 4 o'clock in the morning. Remember so well. Here we were, waiting all night. They come in 4 o'clock in the morning, took the breathing machine off, watched her daughter die, and went home. <clears throat> so for us, then, Tuesday, it was waiting. Now, there was a couple times on Monday night that we really thought, oh, my goodness, where are we at here? Okay, this is, uh, I think I'm over 15 minutes already. So, trying to get through this a little bit faster. On Tuesday, at that point, once they took the breathing machine off of Rosanna, she had no tubes attached, she had nothing. Now, imagine somebody in, in a hospital, in a critical state like she was, having no IVs, no breathing tube, no nothing. The doctors weren't even in and out much. Very, very little. Um, on Tuesday afternoon, I said something to my dad about, I said, what are we going to do? I said, if she is, if she's not going to die, we need to support her somehow. Before we got to the doctors, to the nurses, to ask them about what to do, they came to us just about as soon as we talked about that and offered to transport us home. So we had a conversation. They said they're willing to, to transport us home with their lifeline ambulance. But they said, Rosanna will probably not survive the ride home. But we're willing to help you go home if that's what you want. They really didn't have anything else to offer. So they did. The news media was so heavy, was so intense, and so pressing. They had, am I thinking right, they had locked the doors or somehow they were trying really hard anyway to keep them out of that seventh floor to get Rosanna out of the hospital they took us down all the way down into the basement it looked like a dungeon they had the ambulance parked inside the basement with the doors closed loaded Rosanna into the hospital and headed home they told us that the media probably will be following us as soon as we get out there the media is really watching we got home all right, <coughs> had blockades out there at Corner Catch and at 896. We had uh, uh, the, the, the driver of the ambulance and the fire police there just whispered to each another who was coming, what was going on. That's how heavy the news media was watching, trying to get in, trying to get all the information they could. We got home Tuesday evening, just about dark. Um, there was people there, so we... Tried, we, we laid Rosanna down. She actually survived the ride home. That night, uh, how much should I say here? That night, uh, Mary Lou's parents were there. One of her married brothers was there. We laid down, tried to sleep. We didn't have much sleep for a long time now. So about 12 o'clock, I think it was around midnight, right? When Daniels woke us, her brother woke us and said, uh, if you want to see Rosanna yet before she passes you better come over that she's definitely getting weaker we went to her bedside she was definitely getting weaker her breathing was getting more shallow she still kept going still kept going sometime in the morning mom here asked somebody who said why don't you go out and see if you can't see the angels coming her breathing was so shallow 
<clears throat> she still didn't go. At six o'clock, I was holding her myself. Everybody else was outside of the room, and her breathing was so shallow. I remember this one breath so specifically. She exhaled and stopped. <clears throat> I, I seen it coming, and I intentionally did not. Now, at this point in time, this was now over 24, about 36 hours after this had happened. And at this point, we were trying to, we, we were getting to the point where we wished her rest. So I was just quiet. She exhaled, and I thought, stopped. And she started again. That feeling, I think, will probably stay with me the way it seems now. This is 17 years later. That is one incident that I can call very clearly. <sighs> the feeling of having her start back up or keep going was not what I usually thought it would be. You know, doesn't every parent want her want their child to live? But the fact that she kept going, um, I, I, at that point, I so much just wished her rest. On Wednesday, so that was Tuesday morning. On Wednesday, we went to the viewings. Hmm? Oh, that was Wednesday. Oh, yeah, that was Tuesday evening and we came home. That's right. That was Wednesday morning. Now, yeah, that's right. So now there was viewings going on in Nickel Mines at the others' homes. We wanted to go to the viewings, and we did. We, we, I know we talked about it. Uh, we went to the view, all the other viewings. I think we were gone, what, an hour and a half, two hours? Not knowing, and we really didn't know if she would still be living when we came home, but we decided to take that chance. We're going to go to those viewings. Her parents were there. There were some more people there. So we went to the viewings. We were gone about two hours. Sometime after we came home, now this was interesting, her mother said she is now more relaxed since we are home. And she wasn't responding. However, that was also then on Wednesday, I think, right, that she opened her eyes and that she coughed on Wednesday afternoon. She opened her eyes a little bit and she coughed. Doctor came out that night. Now, at this point in time, this this had happened on Monday. She went to the hospital, and her head was wrapped in a gauze, probably that wide, um, and that was it. That was all that was done, just simply wrapped. So, with her injury there, of course, if someone has a brain injury, that causes swelling, right? So, with the holes in her head, that tissue, fluid, swelling had been draining out. So this was now Wednesday. Uh, the doctor, there's a doctor came out, changed her head bandage for the first time, and it was it was a gross mess. He told us that her lungs are filling with fluid, and I remember him saying that she will now at this point she will probably not die from the gunshot wound itself. She will probably die from a pneumonia or something in that of that sort. Wednesday evening and night, a couple of Mary Liz's sisters were rubbing, massaging, and just doing all sorts of things with massaging and rubbing. And 
Rosanna started doing a lot of coughing. The next morning or the next day, this was now Thursday, the first day of some of these funerals, the doctor came in and checked her and said, whatever, her lungs are clear. Her lungs were clear. This was Thursday. So now we were at that decision again, the same as what we were on Tuesday. Well, if she's going to live, we need to support her. What are we going to do? My parents and Leroy were at one of the funerals. So we sent for them at the funeral for, to come home that we need to talk about. We need to make a decision. We called Hershey again, and they insisted that they come out themselves with their lifeline ambulance to take Rosanna back in. We went back in, talked a little about what to do for Rosanna, and uh, before we almost knew what they were doing, they had her back in the surgery room, right? Just in her room. Well, they, they did a little bit of stitching, and... Cleaned it out very little, but there wasn't much cleaning that they could do. But they were still so sure, and we were too, that she wouldn't survive this, that when she came back, she actually had some hair stitched into her wound. That's how non-clean they were. They just they didn't even shave the hair off. They just sewed them right in, just to patch it up a little bit. Thinking that, and I know we had mentioned that too, that we, we still expected her to pass soon. Try not to shave her whole head if you don't have to. Well, they respected our wishes and they didn't shave anything. A couple weeks later, I think we were then in another week and a half, maybe two, two weeks. Then we came home. She started some what, what we called thalamic storming. There was times in the hospital when she would get so stiff and be... Uh, grexing and moaning, um, sweating. She would just really make herself stiff and sweat a lot. That started before we came home. So we came home and it just kept getting worse, kept getting worse for about two weeks. I remember there was times that we would, every 45 minutes, we would change her clothes and her bedding and her bed was soaked completely wet. She was... She was storming that hard. It, it, she was working so hard. Um, a couple weeks after we were home, we started cranial treatment. Um, after about three cranial treatments, um, and the first cranial treatment, the, he, he just put her hands on her feet and did what he called was stopping her, spin, her, her spinal fluid. Your spinal fluid runs all the way up and down. And he just manipulated that a little bit, and her skull plates actually shifted. Another doctor had told us just a couple of days before, he said, you need cranial treatment now that her, her skull plates are in four different pieces, and they were actually overlapped a little bit. They were shifted from the impact. After the first treatment, they were shifted back again. So that thalamic storming kept going for a couple of weeks. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. At about six weeks, then she started crying. Well, that was music to our ears. She hadn't cried yet. So she started crying. However, for six weeks, whenever she was not sleeping, she was crying or screaming. Like, really screaming. I could come home 
pull up into the driveway. As soon as I stopped, I could hear her screaming in the house. At first, it was music to our ears, but by the time six weeks was up, <coughs> we were worn out. Then we started doing oxygen, oxygen treatments in Colombia. After about five treatments there, her crying stopped. So it was just a chain of events that, that happened there. Um, at nine months, I know there was an incident at about the nine-month period that one evening I was in bed, she was in bed, Rosanna was in bed on her back, and we heard there's some commotion going on. Here she had thrown up. Laying on her back, she threw up. Guess what happened? Went down in her lungs. Well, of course, at that time, we were tired. We were weary. This was a constant struggle. This is every day. What do we do? So now I remember I had, I had gone for the door to call the ambulance. That's right. We had a three-week-old baby at that point. I went for the door to call the ambulance. I stopped and I looked back. The mama said, could we just let her go? So we decided not to call the ambulance. However, you don't just sit there and do nothing. So we had a suction tube. We, we suctioned her, cleaned her up, suctioned and suctioned, and she got through it. So that was, that was then closer at the one-year mark, I guess. So just a little bit before the one-year mark, it was on August the 22nd, <clears throat> we were down at, and this is not directly related to Rosanna, I guess, but it's a part of our journey. We were at Mary Liz's parents for the day, helping on a project, and we got word there that afternoon that her brother, married four years, two little children, <clears throat> was killed in a construction accident. Also, at the same year, at the one-year mark, Terry Roberts, this was the, the mother of the shooter. The women had a tea party at her house. Mary Liz should probably come up here and explain how that was, but there was things there. Uh, you took turns going around the table and sharing where you're at in your healing journey at that point. When it was Mary Liz's turn to comment, she said, I'm not sure that we started yet on our healing journey. We were so involved and so taken up in just simply getting through one day to the next in our care for Rosanna, trying to put one foot in front of the other. At that point, Terry then started coming over. She really became involved. Um, and she would come, this Terry Roberts, would come to our house once a week on a Thursday night uh, for... Years. What year did she pass then? Boy, I'm not even sure what year she died then, but she had, she'd gotten cancer. She had actually had cancer before this happened, was in remission for quite a while, was very healthy. She would come in at one point when she was still good and strong. She would actually wash Rosanna's hair and then take her out on a walk if it was nice and warm outside. She really did a lot for us, just came in and gave us a break. And she was, she was the kind of person where she would... She read a lot of stories. I know she read a lot of uh, Anne of Green Gable stories to Rosanna. And she had a way of reading that was very, I don't know what the proper wording is for that, but she, she could read in a way that it seemed like you were right there in that story. 
and she would read to Rosanna regardless if Rosanna was responding or not. She would actually hold Rosanna in her lap. And little Benio here, as he, when he came on board here, and uh, Terry would be reading, and these little boys got to know Terry so well, they'd go up to Terry and just be jabbering away in Dutch. Terry didn't understand a word, but she was right there with him. She was just conversing. She was that kind of a person. So she was really actually a, a, a day brightener in our life there for quite a few years. Um, in February of 2008, this was now about a year and a half, one morning about 5 o'clock, one of my brothers came storming in our door and said, uh, we found Dad, he died of a heart attack. Now this was the Levi King that was living there on the farm where this school happening happened. February 29th of 2008. They found him early in the morning on his chair. Passed away. So that's a part of the journey. I'm not sure where to go with all this. I'm sure there's probably lots more that could be said. Currently, Rosanna goes to the Sunbeam Workshop. She's, she goes away. She has things going five days a week. Sunbeam Workshop, Care Center, Harmony Hollow, Riding Therapy. To me, probably Harmony Hollow Riding Therapy is probably one of the highlights for me. And by the way, speaking of Harmony Hollow, we all have, also have Paul and Janice Kreider here. Uh, Paul and Janice came on board here a couple years ago. Or what was it, a year? Maybe a little over a year. And they started doing the driving for Harmony Hollow. Which also reminds me, Marlon and Gloria Byler here. Um, Gloria reminded me the other day how where they first met us in the hospital. I don't remember a thing about that. Don't remember meeting them in the hospital, but I do remember when they came to our house. Mm, one of the first couple of weeks, right? First or second day, um, and they introduced themselves. And if we need something, to let them know. So right, almost from day one, they were our driver. They were Rosanna's driver for quite a while. When Rosanna needed to be transported, she was only six years old, so we would sit in a van, hold her. Uh, and then even, well, then we got a wheelchair van, and Marlon and Gloria have been driving for her ever since. Paul and Janice came on board here uh, about a year ago. Now, currently, Janice does all the driving for Harmony Hollow. So at Harmony Hollow Riding Therapy, we take Rosanna, and we actually lay her flat on the back of a horse. They have horses there for riding therapy, we lay her with her head towards the back on the rump end of a horse, two people on each side for balancing, support, a leader, and we walk around, we work circles in the riding arena. There's a couple of things that we feel that this does. One is it definitely, for somebody like Rosanna sitting in a wheelchair, she kind of gets crammed together, her lungs get congested, she's had a lot of problems with that lying on her back 
on a horse, you get a, an awful lot of stimulation from a horse into the human body if you're on a horse, much more than I ever realized. However, and with Rosanna laying on her back, it kind of forces her elbows down, opens her chest cavity, and we feel like that helps a lot for uh, congestion for her, her lung capacity there. Oh, there was a couple more things that I was thinking here that maybe I should share. Uh, you know, anything, is there anything else that I really should mention there? But that has been our journey. Um, I guess yeah, I also wanted to mention there's been days, there's been nights when the road is way too dark, the valleys are way too deep. <coughs> I think you've been with me now for where, where you could tell that the Lord took us, I feel like the Lord took us to the edge of a cliff, maybe even held us out over, but one thing that he didn't do, he never let go. There was times, there was definitely times where I was depressed, where I felt like giving up, um, where I was bitter. I had all those emotions. It's been quite a journey. However, I do want to say, at this point in life, 17 years later, we are encouraged. So I guess I just want to encourage anybody, if there's anybody here that ever struggles, which I'm sure we probably all do in different ways. So if, if you're struggling with health, with spiritual, uh, with special needs children, be encouraged. I'm at a spot, I'm at a place now, uh, I'm hoping I can keep that where we can, we can embrace the journey. Life is a journey, and we can embrace the journey knowing that for those that persevere until the end, we can reach that goal. I, I, I've, I've looked quite often, we think about life, that when we started out, say when we got married or just before this happening here, we're a small family, we're just doing our thing, trying to serve God the best we can, and we have, a, we have a destination, right? We have a goal, and that is heaven. We still have the same goal, however, there has been a huge obstacle course dropped right down in front of us. We can't get around it, we have to go through it. Isn't that how life is for all of us? We all have our own obstacle course. So let us all embrace the journey, persevere until the end. In heaven's glory, we will not care how rough the road that led us there. I do believe that. So God's blessings to all of you. Yes, Tom. Could you say a little bit about your journey of forgiveness? I missed that. I was going to talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> what do you say? Forgiveness. When I think of forgiveness, I think of the Lord's Prayer. What more do we need? It doesn't say if somebody does a little sin towards you or against you, 
doesn't say that. What more can I say? I also think, of it, when I think of that, I think it was about a year later, we were together, there was a couple bishops together, and I, I asked a question. I said, so how do you know if you have forgiven a person or not? One thing that came back was they felt once we can think of what wrong a person has done to us, we can think about that person and not wish him evil, we have a good start. It's been quite a journey on those long, sleepless nights when Rosanna just cries and cries and cries. There's not so much, not so, as much of those anymore. However, we did have a couple of those again a couple months ago. Sitting beside her bedside, trying to comfort her. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do, she still cries or screams periodically. In those moments, I feel like I'm starting my forgiveness journey all over again. Does that answer some of that question, Tom? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe people that are um, that are in a better position in their spiritual life than I am, maybe they wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But for me, it is real. I'm a small human being. I struggle a lot with flesh and blood. But I have said that I don't struggle as much with what Charlie did to our family as I do about what, as I struggle with God that he left this happen. Okay, you're not going to understand, right? We're, we're supposed to think that God has everything in control, and I think he does. Where I get finished with that is, okay, God could have prevented this, right? But then I also go to where I do believe that when this happened, God was at the same place that he was when his son was murdered. So there again, what can I say? Where do I go? <clears throat> we come back to the Lord. We keep praying for strength. We keep playing, praying for forgiveness. I guess one thing that I mentioned there um, for some of the roller coaster rides that I was on personally, since this happened, in the valleys, in the pits, battling with bitterness, battling with all kinds of emotions that aren't good, I've come to realize how do you want to say this? I've come to realize how close I am to being Charlie. Does that make sense? Uh, but again, where Charlie was in a position where he was bitter at God and he did not, he did not go to God asking for help 
asking for strength to endure the day. Instead, he got bitter. Um, and, and us as human beings want to be so careful that we don't do that. So I'm hoping where I can then do something different. I think I have all the same emotions to work through that Charlie had after the death of his little girl, which is when he then turned bitter. I think I had all the same emotions, but I want to hope and depend on and pray for God's guidance to hope in the Lord, keep our focus where it should be, and just realize it's these that persevere unto the end that win the crown. Does that answer that question, Tom? I am. Is there any questions? Yes. I can say a little bit about that. The question was, can I say a little bit about the Virginia Tech families? Uh, we have met some of the Virginia Tech families. We have met some of the Sandy Hook families in Connecticut. Virginia Tech, I think, was a year after, right? Was it not? I went. But I, I remember that you didn't go. But I went along when there was a bus trip of our community, Nickel Mines people, went to Virginia Tech. Um, I can't remember a whole lot. Again, we're, we had our hands so full just trying to keep our own head above water. I do remember I was there. Other than that, I really can't say a whole lot. Um, Sandy Hook was more recent. However, there again, uh, we went along on a trip to visit those families, and we find again a lot more people involved, maybe more politics, but the emotions are all the same as what we found. We've talked with parents that lost children. I uh, can't say that we really met with anybody that had brain-injured children that survived. I'm not sure that we really made any connections there. Any other questions? I'm sure there was probably some important pieces that I missed. However, hopefully you've been with me on our journey. The police connecting with the families, I can talk a little bit about that, yes. Uh, there's quite a few of them that we got to know by name. Uh, John Smith was one. Doug Beerick, the commander, was another. He had stopped in quite a few times already. So there's been quite a connection, and different families have different connections with different of the police. Um, other than that, do you have something specific in mind? Yeah, that's right. Doug Beery, even today, yeah, Doug Beery was, was in command at the scene that day. He has made lots of phone calls. He has left us a message every year on the date since that happened. So we've had some really good connections with the state police through that event. I have a new, I always had respect for the police, but I have a new uh, height and respect for our police force 
since that day. Um, I cannot be quiet if I'm riding with somebody or I hear a remark if you're going down the highway and you <laughs> see a police cruiser parked watching for speeders or whatever it might be. You hear these remarks, oh, out looking for trouble. If I'm driving, riding with somebody and they make a, make a comment like that, I just, can't, I just simply can't shut up. I have to talk. We can't, we can't do that. That's just simply disrespect for our police force. After we saw what we've seen, the way they put their life on the line, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that there is some cops out there that probably don't do the right thing. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is they do put their life on the line a lot of times, and the way they displayed that out here, they didn't flinch an eye when they were running towards the schoolhouse and this bullet came flying their way. Didn't hit any of them, but neither did it turn them to the side. They were there ready to die for the sake of our children. Any other questions? Rosanna's future? And also have all the other fellows fully recovered. Good question. How does Rosanna's future look? I have no clue, Tom. I don't even know what mine looks like in a minute from now. How can I tell you what Rosanna's looks like? Uh, but no, in reality, last fall was a rough fall for Rosanna. We did some more testing. The doctors told us that she has calcification of the arteries. Calcification of the arteries is a fancy word for hardening of the arteries. Rosanna's arteries look like a 70-year-old's arteries. There's no doubt, she's very slowly, there's no doubt that her body does age faster than mine or yours does. That is, without a doubt. Um, what was the other question? The other oh, the other girls. Well, Verna's daughter, Esther, she's married, has what, four children, five children, four children, healthy, young mother. She's had her issues, um, had a surgery since, but not for quite a while. She seems to be healthy for what I know. Uh, Rachel Ann, the same way. She also had an injury, not as severe, and yet the bullet had hit her, had nicked her esophagus, I think, right? So she was on a dangerous, in a dangerous place, but that healed, seems to be doing fine. Barbie is also married, living in our neighborhood, has three, four children. Um, she had a very severe left shoulder injury. She had such a severe injury and was bleeding that they had to keep pressure on there. She would just profusely bleed. She, she very closely bled to death. Um, has some socket, really severe socket damage. She struggles with her shoulder. And yet, she's a... You wouldn't know it. For any of the other five survivors, so the other four other than Rosanna... You couldn't tell by looking at them. You couldn't tell that anything's wrong. Sarah Ann had a head injury. They had taken the one side of her skull out completely, 
at the 48-hour mark, when we were at the viewing, her dad said, at this point, they have no idea which way it's going to go. That the doctors said at the 72-hour mark, you will probably be able to tell which way she's going to go. She survived. Again, she's up and at it. You wouldn't tell by looking at her. But, and I didn't know her that well before, but she struggles. I would say she probably struggles emotionally. Well, I know she does. Struggles emotionally uh, the most. But all in all, fairly healthy. For the boys, oh, it's way past 8.15, and I started before 7.30, so actually I've been out for an hour. It's time to quit. And my urge to run has gotten away. I would just like to sit down. Um, however, there, it's been quite a journey. We could talk for a long time on how did the boys cope uh, and the journey that the boys have been through and the parents as well. But the boys, even today, uh, the boys still need prayers to be able to cope. We were told in the first couple weeks, months especially, we were told that in 10 years from now, you and your families will probably need as much counseling or more than what you do now in the first, within the first year. Well, that's probably not a good thing to say to families like that. However, it is true for some of us. Some of us. Any other questions? Well, thanks for having me. I just, I just hope that what I shared was not to put us on the pedestal. What I shared was also not for people to pity us. But I do ask for your prayers that we could persevere until the end, until we can be in glory forever. So thanks for having us.